Uh, but I'm going to be leading us this morning in uh, continuing in our Advent season, series uh, in uh, the book of Isaiah as we've been walking through this book and looking at the thrill of hope. And so I'm going to invite you now, if you're able, would you stand, as is our custom, for the reading of God's Word. This morning we're in Isaiah 35. We're going to be reading the entire chapter, verses 1 through 10. This is God's Word. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. For the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness the unclean shall not pass over it it shall belong to those who walk on the way even if they are fools they shall not go astray no lion shall be there nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it they shall not be found there but the redeemed shall walk there and the ransom of the lord shall return and come to zion with singing Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The prophet Isaiah says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but his word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your, your word. We believe your word is true. And we ask that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would bring your truth to us, your people, and that we would, through this time in your word, encounter you, the living God, and be transformed. God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. A few months ago, my doorbell rang quite unexpectedly on a random Saturday morning. And when I came to the door, I saw a man standing there, and this man was staring at me with that kind of look you get from an old friend. And yet in the moment, I could not put my finger on exactly who he was and why he was looking at me in this way. And then it finally hit me who he was and what was amazing is I hadn't seen this man in probably a year and a half, but it wasn't that I had a lapse of memory when he arrived that caused me not to recognize him, but the reason I didn't recognize him is because the man that stood before me did not look like the man I had seen a year and a half ago. You see, uh, the last time that we saw each other, this man was in the throes of a drug and alcohol addiction and, and his whole body showed that. Uh, his face always showed signs of exhaustion and fatigue. His 
facial hair was always a little bit out of control. His clothes normally didn't fit very well, had holes in them. They didn't often smell very well either. His whole body appeared weak and frail, and, and the smell of alcohol tinged most every word that came out of his mouth. However, the man who stood before me on this Saturday morning, he was not that same man. This man, who had spent the last uh, couple years in Trosa's recovery program, looked like nothing I'd seen before. He had on new clothes that seemed to fit just right. He arrived in a car that he owned. Uh, when I moved in to hug him, I felt him as solid as a rock. Clearly been spending some time in the, in the gym at Trosa. The thing that was most noticeable about this man was his, was his face. With all the facial hair cleaned away, he was sporting this huge smile, ear to ear. And, and the thing that was, was, was most apparent is that he was clearly filled with joy. And, and I couldn't help but marvel as I was staring at him how there was the something that was happening on the inside was so easy to notice on the outside. You see, this was a, a new man. And what's interesting here is our text is a story of transformation. Isaiah 35 is a, is a picture of the transformation of the cosmos, of the whole creation, a transformation that's so grand that it's going to be hard to even recognize after it's done. And, and although this transformation has been foretold time and time again, what the prophet is recognizing is that God's people have failed to believe that it's coming. And the prophet is writing here in order to manage their expectations. Now, normally when we talk about managing expectations, we're, we're talking about making sure that expectations are not too high. I'll let you in on a little secret. The essence of premarital counseling is to make sure that your expectations are not too high, to make sure that you don't think that the person sitting in front of you is as, is as wonderful as they are. You kind of have to dial it back. But Isaiah is not trying to limit the people's expectations. The problem is not that they're too high, but they're too low. And he's writing this poem in order to speak to the hearts of God's people. And the poem is supposed to send the reader's expectations through the roof. It's supposed to create this thrill of hope that we've been talking about in this Advent season. And so as we look at this text this morning, there's three things that I want you to see that will help us as we try to manage our expectations around this beautiful thing called Advent. First is the author of this transformation. The second thing that we want to look at is the breadth of the transformation. And lastly, the journey of transformation. So let's begin. The, the author of transformation. So first things first, before we can unpack the details of this transformation that the prophet is going to show us, we have to first examine where it comes from, or maybe better yet, from whom does it come? Now, as I mentioned before, Isaiah 35 is a poem. And so when you're writing a poem, the structure and the layout is always critical. And in this poem, Isaiah is using a literary tool that's very common amongst Hebrew writers in this period called a chiasm. Basically, a chiasm is a sandwich, <laughs> and in a chiasm, the main point is right in the middle. It's, it's the meat, if you will. 
And the meat of this chiasm is the answer to that question, from whom does this transformation come? Look look again at verse 4. He says, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So you see the main point of Isaiah, the meat of Isaiah 35, no big surprise, is the Advent story. The prophet declares that God is going to come down, to come down in all his glory and splendor and might, but not to destroy, but rather to save, to save you. And thanks be to God, although the original audience is looking longingly forward, expectant of the day when God will come, we now look back and we celebrate that our God has come. Amen. And church, just to be clear, Advent hinges on this truth. If God didn't actually come, if God didn't in fact send his son, if if the son was not actually born of the Virgin Mary in a manger in Bethlehem, then Christianity holds no water. Every week at the end of our service, we together recite the Apostles' Creed, a creed that declares the historicity of the Advent story, that this thing isn't made up, that the meat, if you will, is real, that Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, truly lived, truly died, truly rose from the grave, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Church, the first question we have to ask is, do you believe this? Because unless you do, you will never experience the thrill of hope that Advent brings. The good news is that he did, in fact, come. And if that is true, then it changes everything. Which brings us to our second point this morning, the breadth of the transformation that Christ's coming brings. And there are two things that I want you to see in this text in terms of the breadth of this transformation. First is that this transformation is otherworldly. And secondly, that it is a whole world transformation. One of the things that I'm I'm always reminded of around this time of year is that here in the West, unlike many other places in the world, we struggle to accept this idea of supernatural. Uh, We we demand that everything be proven by science and logic, and, and it has to be proven in order to be real, to be true. I tasted this a few days ago in the car with my kids as I listened to one of my children processing through the intangibles of Santa's 12-hour worldwide delivery journey. Not even Amazon could pull that off. And I could hear in her processing the, the Western bias, demanding a scientific explanation of it all, or it, it can't be trusted. And yet our text paints a picture of something that is not very scientific at all of a transformation that is nothing short of a miracle. Look again at this text as we see the different aspects of the supernatural. Verse 1 says that in the desert will shoot up a gigantic garden, a garden that shares the glory of Lebanon. Now, most of us aren't well-versed enough in history or geography to know what the prophet is saying here, but the reality is Lebanon was known for being one of the most lush and green and beautiful places in this whole region. So the picture is that of Duke Gardens springing up right in the middle of the desert. Then verse 5, he says, this transformation is going to be even greater than that. It will result in blind people seeing, deaf people hearing, lame people dancing, and mute people singing. 
But that's not enough yet. There's even more that's, that's going to happen. Verse 6, the prophet declares that within this transformation, in place where there have never been water, a spring shall appear out of nowhere. So what's the, what's the prophet getting at here? What, what is he trying to help us see? Remember, this is poetry, and, and it's supposed to grip our hearts, not just inform our minds. And, and what the prophet is doing here is he's, he's encouraging us to put our Western bias to sleep in, in order to grasp the true breadth of this transformation because it's going to be something that we've never seen before, something that we won't be able to sp- explain away with science and logic. But how do we, Western, scientific-driven, logic-driven people, cultivate a belief in the supernatural? Throughout the Old Testament, there's this practice that we see called Ebenezering, if you will. I made up a word there, but it works. And, and, and what the idea is that whenever God would show up for God's people, what they would do is they would pause and they would build a little monument a stone monument on the site of the miracle. And they do this so that when they came back to that place or their children came back to their place or their children's children came back to that place, they would be reminded of the supernatural power of their God so that they would not forget. I've never personally built an Ebenezer, but I like to journal. And if you open up my journal, what you see are countless ink Ebenezers. There are accounts of God showing up in my life in ways that are unexplainable by science or by logic. And from time to time, I go back and I visit those Ebenezers. I I read my journal because in the moment, in spite of the fact that I've seen him do it time and time again, I forget. And I don't believe that God is able to do all things, that all things are possible in him. Church, it's, it's so important that we believe in the supernatural. And one of the reasons is because, as we know, the hope for this world is not in this world. <laughs> and we know this to be true. We do not possess in this room, in us, the ability to fix all that is broken in this world. The thrill of hope, hope for us comes not from the belief that, yes, we can, but rather in the belief that, no, we can't. And yet we know the one who can, and he promises that he will. Do you believe that our God can and will? The second reason we need to believe in the supernatural is because many of us, like Israel in this text, have rightfully assessed our situation and we've counted it as hopeless. Listen to verse 3. It says, The strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. The, the, this picture of weak hands and feeble knees is, is of one who has given up one who has lost hope, who's assessed their situation and concluded that it truly is hopeless. I imagine there are a number of of us here this morning who have weak hands and feeble knees, who have rightly assessed your situation and concluded that it's hopeless and you've given up. You're convinced that your, your marriage is done that your child will never know Christ, that your fight with addiction will always be a losing one, that your desire for a spouse will always go unmet, that your financial burdens are only going to get worse, uh, that your struggles with mental illness will inevitably follow you for the rest of your life. 
You know these things to be true. You're convinced, and, and scientifically and logically speaking, you might be right. And yet what you need to hear this morning is that although your logic is sound, our God is not bound by logic. Our God is in the miracle business. He delights in the impossible. And he is doing a transformation that can only be explained by but God. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe that the transformation that Jesus brings is otherworldly? That it's big enough to transform those things in your life that need nothing short of a miracle? Not only is this transformation that Jesus brings out of this world, but what our text also reveals is that it's a whole world transformation. I think one of my favorite lines from all of the great Christmas hymns comes from Joy to the World. It says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. And what this line is talking about is, is the reality that sin has made a big mess. My kids sing a song that, that goes like this, sin messed everything up, everything up. Oh, no. <laughs> and that's the reality that, that this hymn and our text reveals is that it's broken. It's all messed up. And yet this transformation fixes all that is broken. Listen to the different aspects of the transformation. There's a garden that's going to pop up in the desert. And for some of us, that may seem wasteful, useless. What utility is there in a garden in a desert? And the answer is absolutely none. There's no utility for this. So why then? Why does the prophet talk about this garden in a desert? The reason is, is because it's for beauty's sake. Church, don't miss this. Part of the transformation that Jesus brings is beauty for beauty's sake. Sin has broken and torn down this world, but Jesus comes not just to make things work or efficient or sustainable. He is transforming this world in a way that will bring awe and wonder and amazement. When God declares that one day the earth will be filled with his glory, don't miss that that glory will be immeasurably beautiful. God is transforming this world in a beautiful way. Verse 4 says that, this transformation that he brings is going to come with salvation. This is the most common understanding or explanation that we have of, of why Christ comes. That in his coming he brings salvation. That, that the curse that we experience because of our sin is real. And because of our sin we deserve punishment and condemnation. But Christ comes to save us, to rescue us, to defeat sin and Satan once and for all. But not just salvation, he comes to heal the sick. Look at verse 5 and 6. We see that this transformation is not merely about our spiritual bondage, but it's about our physical bondage. That he's going to come and, and make the, the, lame sp the lame walk and the blind see. So many people live in constant pain and their bodies are broken and, and hurting. So many people are battling with mental illness and addiction, and yet Jesus comes to transform the whole body. This transformation is whole worldly, holistic. And when I think about this, as I read this, I, I can't help but, but stand in awe. And it makes me think of what the psalmist says in 103, Psalm 103. This is what he says. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. 
Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The reason I think of this passage and I stand in awe of verse of Isaiah 35 is because when you read it, it just seems like it's too much. It seems too good to be true. There's no way that God's transformation can truly be that all-encompassing. And yet that's what the psalmist says, is in, in, and he reminds us and he ri- reminds himself that we must not forget all his benefits. He's driving that truth deeper and deeper into our hearts. Church, do you believe that when Christ comes, he comes to make all things new? Now that sounds well and good, but what does that do for me in the here and now? There's this promise of this transformation that is otherworldly, that is whole worldly, and yet the reality is most of us are not experiencing that right now. Amen. There's still hurt, there's still brokenness, there's still pain and suffering, which brings us to this final point, the journey of transformation. How do we experience this in the now? And I want you to look now with me at verse 8. Our passage ends with this strange description of something popping up in the middle of this transformed earth. It says, and a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. And this highway helps us to understand what it looks like to be in this world that is being transformed. I think it's important to note that there's a highway and not one of those people movers that you see at the airport. We don't just stand and and, and are carted along, but God invites us on this journey that we have to walk. I don't know about you, but I'm addicted to efficiency. I'm always looking for the quickest possible way to accomplish something with the least amount of effort. Technology speaks my love language in this way. Everything seems to be getting faster and faster, more efficient and requiring less and less effort on our part. But rarely do I ever pause and think about whether this blind pursuit of efficiency is a good thing. Our microwave broke yesterday at my house, and you'd think we'd lost a loved one. It was, it was unbelievable. And, and my kids are asking, how are we going to eat? What are we going to do? <laughs> And it made me wonder, is there, is there danger in this addiction to immediate gratification? Because the Christian life is always described as a journey, as a pathway that we walk. And it leads to Zion. It leads to the new heavens and the new earth. But we're not there yet. And we should not expect that it be easy. But I want to conclude by looking here at verse 10 and, and this incredible picture of what this journey looks like. He says, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Let us not lose sight of the fact that these are people who are coming and they're singing before they get there. And these are not people who figured it out. These are people with broken marriages, with wayward kids, with addiction, with battles that they're facing, with financial struggles, and yet They're singing together. They're rejoicing as they come in. 
Why are they rejoicing? I think they're rejoicing because they're not alone and because they see Zion on the horizon. When I had graduated uh, college, I, I moved to Atlanta, and I was in a relationship, and, and I thought this relationship was everything. And I remember the day I got this letter in the mail saying that this relationship was no more. And as a 22-year-old man, my life was over. And I can kind of look back now and, and see how that was kind of silly. But in that moment, it wasn't silly. It wasn't funny. It, it was devastating. And in this little apartment, I had a, a closet where I would go to be with Jesus. And I went into that closet, and I just wept. And just wept and wept and wept and cried out to God. And, and the strangest thing happened. As I was in there, over time, my weeping turned to singing. And I began to sing out. And my, my roommates talk about how it sounded like a dog was dying in there or something. It just speaks to how good I am at singing. But, but, but it was fascinating how my tears went away and there was this profound experience of rejoicing and it wasn't rejoicing like maybe the girl was going to write me back or rejoicing that I knew one day I was going to get married or it was going to be okay it was rejoicing because God met me in that place I wasn't alone and in that place I could see maybe better yet taste Zion I could taste what it was going to be like to be with him for all eternity brothers and sisters this journey is not easy it's hard it's hurtful it's painful but we walk it knowing that we are not alone and that one day, for sure, someday, we will rejoice and be with our Heavenly Father in paradise. And that gives us the thrill of hope that we need to carry on. Would you pray with me? Father, we believe that you are making all things new, that your Son Jesus has come to our rescue that he has conquered sin and death and that he is transforming us into your image. And yet we still walk in this broken world. We still battle the brokenness in our own hearts. And it's easy to lose hope. God, I pray that you would remind us that you are with us on this highway, that we are not alone. And show us that picture of Zion. Show us the picture of what is to come. And would that give us hope that leads to rejoicing? And would we sing out together? Because we know that one day we will be in the promised land. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.